From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, Stripe steps back into crypto, Fintech for good Helios raises a seed round, and football fans tip their cup-winning manager via his banking app. All this and more on today's show. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Let's face it, cards were not designed for online. Payments can take days to settle, hurting customer loyalty, while high fraud, clunky checkouts and expensive fees means millions in missed revenue. At TrueLayer, we've made instant payments available for businesses across Europe and the UK, so you can cut costs, fight fraud, and get money moving faster. To learn more, visit truelayer.com forward slash payments. Welcome to episode 624 of Fintech Insider. My name is Benjamin Ensor, and I'm joined on this week's Fintech Insider news by my 11FS colleague, Guerra Kawana, Product Manager at 11FS. Great to be back on the show together, Guerra. How are you doing? Doing okay. Always always happy to be uh, co-hosting with you, Benjamin. Yeah. How's, how's London? How's the office? Looks like you're in a fancy studio today. I am in the studio today, which is always good for the sound. There was a fire alarm last time I was in the studio, which I didn't hear. So that's a tip for... Uh, people with the studios. And, of course, we're joined by some very special guests. So first up, making a fintech insider debut, we have Julia Menayas, co-founder at Helios. Welcome to the show, Julia. Can you give our audience a brief explainer on Helios, please? Sure. So thanks for the invitation. Very happy to be here. So about Helios, Helios, we are a new ecological banking solution. We are based out of Paris. Um, and we now provide sustainable banking products to about 8,000 clients across France, Belgium, and hopefully Europe. And we're here to detail a bit more about our new fundraising, a seed round of 9 million euros that we just uh, disclosed. Well, welcome, and uh, we'll, we'll get on to that in a moment. And we also have another uh, guest making a debut on Fintech Insider, which I have to admit I'm a bit surprised by because I would have thought you'd have been on the show before. So it's a very big welcome to Jason Mikula, a publisher of Fintech Business Weekly. Welcome, Jason. Can you give listeners who haven't already stumbled across you um, an introduction to yourself and Fintech Business Weekly, please? Yeah, uh, it is my first time and, and thanks for having me. Uh, as you mentioned, I publish uh, the newsletter, Fintech Business Weekly, which you're Readers can find on Substack or at fintechbusinessweekly.com, where I analyze uh, the latest trends in technology, regulatory, and business model environment uh, that are driving what's happening in financial services. And you know, prior to this, I spent about a decade working in consumer lending and consumer fintech, both in the US and the UK. Well, welcome, and welcome to you both. And with that, let's get into the news. So our first story, which was reported on CNBC and various other places, is that fintech giant Stripe is jumping into crypto with a feature that lets Twitter users get paid in stablecoin. So Stripe will allow businesses to pay their users via cryptocurrencies, starting with Twitter, in the latest sign of how large financial services firms are warming to digital assets. The $95 billion online payments company said it will start offering merchants the ability to make payouts in crypto through the stablecoin USDC, which is issued by crypto firm Circle. Stablecoins are tokens that are pegged to fiat currencies to maintain a stable price. Twitter is the first company to integrate the new payment methods, with a certain number of creators receiving their earnings from its paid ticketed spaces and super follows features in USDC. 
To get some insight uh, on this from a crypto native, we reached out to Maurizio Magaldi, head of crypto here at 11FS, to get his thoughts on why Stripe partnered with crypto on this and why has the creator economy embraced crypto payments. After operating with Bitcoin between 2014 and 18, Stripe resumed their crypto efforts last year by launching a suite of services to help crypto native companies integrate to traditional fiat rails. And now they recently announced a partnership to let Twitter influencers get tipped with USDC. USDC is a stablecoin, a type of crypto asset that has its value packed to a traditional fiat currency, avoiding the volatility that is common with Bitcoin, Ether, and others. You can think of stablecoins as a way for non-crypto people to start using crypto as an infrastructure rather than an investment on a risky asset. The creator economy is an often overlooked demographic by the traditional financial system, so they quickly embrace crypto. Just take a look at the figures for digital art that is sold through NFTs. Twitter is an obvious first partner because they have been offering tips with Bitcoin and Ether since last year, so USDC seems an obvious next step. Guerra, I might start with you. What's, what's your take on this? Is, is USDC obvious rather than Bitcoin? It, is this greater stability for the, the advantage? What do you think? Absolutely. I think that um, starting with USDC, as uh, you know, I think stablecoins like USDC will probably be the first port of contact people will have with crypto with regards to like mainstream uh, adoption of crypto. It's easy to understand. It's pegged to the US dollar. There are various use cases for it already out in the world right now, um, like people, uh, you know, hedging for currency volatility and, and all that with USDC. Also makes sense that Twitter is, is doing this. You know, they've already been accepting crypto uh, via Bitcoin, Ether. Um, and I think other there's other um, custodial wallets uh, in other parts of the world that, that they've plugged into their platform. But yeah, totally, absolutely makes sense for them to embrace the USDC, um, especially for paying out tips to international um, creators. Um, so yeah, I'm also I'm a big fan of the creator economy. Let's uh, let's bring back more stories about the creator economy, please. And of course, Twitter's new owner is a bit of a fan of of, of, of crypto as well. <laughs> He's more a fan of Doge, I'd say. But yeah, yeah, USDC would be a close second. <laughs> Jason, what, what do you think? Um, you know, Stripe stepping back into crypto is is it too late? I mean, what, what's your take? Uh, no, I don't think it's too late. I mean, if you think about where where Stripe was and where crypto was, you know, a handful of years ago when Stripe tried and then sort of pulled back its Bitcoin related projects. The initial idea was that Bitcoin would be used primarily as a payment mechanism. Uh, now, obviously, that's for the most part not what has come to pass. So, I mean, Stripe Stripe's main you know value proposition is facilitating payments. If people are buying and holding Bitcoin or Ether as an investment asset, as a store of value, rather than using it to buy, you know buy things in person, online, or to tip, it made sense that Stripe might uh, sort of reconsider that decision. But now there's been a couple of de developments. One, you know, the rise of stable coins like USDC that you've been discussing, but also the rise of mechanisms that make paying with Bitcoin more practical, like the Lightning Network, that I imagine have uh, encouraged Stripe to sort of re-enter the space. So I think that no, you know, it, it's. I don't think it's too late for Stripe, particularly given its large existing merchant footprint. I mean, I actually use Stripe uh, to accept payments from uh, from clients and from subscribers to my newsletter. So I mean, it has a very, very wide footprint. 
And now you can imagine use cases, whether it's you know the more volatile cryptocurrencies or stable coins that are purportedly pegged to the US dollar, for Stripe to sort of carve out a new role in facilitating uh, those payments and, and of course, you know, taking a small cut for itself, I assume. Why is the um, why is the Lightning Network important? So the Lightning Networks makes Bitcoin more feasible as a payment mechanism by solving two major pain points. Uh, one is the volatility, uh, and two is the speed, you know, and or uh, expense of processing Bitcoin transactions. The way I like to describe the Lightning Network is operating somewhat akin to Visa or MasterCard in that it's separating an authorization and a settlement. So basically, it's what's called an L2 or Layer 2 protocol that operates on top of Bitcoin to authorize a transaction. Uh, so it sort of feels and looks like it's happening in real time. But then at a later date, it's going to batch and settle those transactions to the underlying Bitcoin blockchain. So you've seen uh, Cash App in the US announce support for Lightning payments. You've seen Shopify, which has, you know, I think millions of merchants also announced support. So what seemed impractical, there's now been a sort of like technological evolution that has made Bitcoin more practical as a payment mechanism. And what's really interesting is conceptually, you know, you don't even necessarily need to hold Bitcoin for a prolonged period of time to use it as a payment channel. You know, I could say, you know, I want to make this payment via you know, Lightning Network have either, you know, fiat dollars or USDC debited out of account, have that moved to my counterparty and converted back into whatever their preferred currency is. So it allows Bitcoin to work almost as a payment mechanism without even needing exposure or holding on to that underlying crypto asset. It's interesting listening to you talking about sort of Visa and MasterCard and then mentioning the Cash App and so on, because Guerra, we're kind of seeing all the big US sort of fintech firms and payment firms, including the sort of more established ones, really embracing crypto over the last sort of um, 12, 18 months. It's just, you know, big shift in attitude, right? Massive. I mean, we're seeing it internally in the work that we're doing, but also externally um, in the news and the conversations we're having. I think that, you know, two years ago, three years ago, talking about an incumbent payment company um, entering crypto would have sounded like, oh, the boomers are out again. I guess they're, you know, like they've come to the party. No, that's no longer the case. You know, they're definitely like, this is, this is, we're seeing folks like Stripe and, and Visa, MasterCard enter crypto, um, or at least, a, you know, the crypto uh, economy in, in a really thoughtful way. I do know that Stripe did experiment with Bitcoin payments like like a, many years ago for a short period of time, right? But um, they moved early. It was, I think the lessons they've learned from that make sense. Um, but we're seeing an embrace from these payments companies, these like fintech giants, um, these non-crypto natives embrace the concept of the DeFi mullet. So like the, the concept, you know, the mullet being business in the front, party in the back uh, hairstyle, but, you know, thinking it more, more like fintech in the front, DeFi powering the back. Th these are the kinds of companies that are going to bring, well, in my opinion, will bring crypto to mainstream. People understand USDC, people understand the fintech products and services they use right now, the experiences, and it's less scary than than setting up a MetaMask wallet and navigating, you know, DeFi and, and meta, the metaverse. Um, so yeah, it's definitely like, this is a trend we're going to see pick up a lot more in the next few months. 
There's one more angle in this I'd like to I'd like to pick up on because um, you know Jason, you mentioned um, Substack and and Guerra, you're talking about the sort of creator economy and so on, and Twitter has has the super follow feature that lets certain users charge others for subscriber only content and so on. We're seeing a big shift, aren't we, in platforms really trying to help sort of creators get get paid and and you know helping more people make a living through the digital economy. Am, am I seeing? Am I reading too much into that, or, or is that a, a a growing trend? That's definitely a, maybe a, it's just been a trend for so it's, long. It's, it's a growing <laughs> it's trend. Not no, it's a growing trend because uh, platforms are understanding that you know they can no longer monetize. You know, just have it be like one way monetization off of us, the users. Um, supporting their creators is what brings everyone else to the platform. So I think pioneers in this have been you know. TikTok, for example, TikTok, they came up with the creator fund and it's made the app so sticky and and so fans and people who consume content from creators keep coming back. So it's definitely, again, it, people have been doing this for a while or, or platforms are doing this for a while. We're going to see more of it. The obvious question to ask someone who comes from a sort of sustainability background is, uh, you know, people often criticize the energy usage of, of particularly Bitcoin, but, you know, also some other, you know, blockchain systems with uh, sort of proof of work mechanisms that are hugely energy intensive. Are you seeing interest in crypto from your customers? And do you, do you see a clash between sustainability and, and cryptocurrencies? What, what, have you got a thought on that? All right, so huge disclaimer here at the start. I'm no crypto expert at all, so I'll do my best to answer it from a customer's point of view, because I, I do um, keep the discussion going a lot with our current customers, even though uh, the company has expanded a lot. I keep the conversation very open with our customers and they are really interested in the decentralized philosophy and the fact that as customers, as users, they can have access to somehow ownership of the project in a decentralized way. So this seems very um, theoretical here, but the whole philosophy is of interest to our, our users. The crypto sphere for now is way too polluting for um, a sustainable company like us to really engage in. But we are um, actually quite attentive to what is new on the market and new on te the technology side when it comes to uh, more sustainable crypto assets or infrastructures here. So there's definitely some things going on and happening um, there. And uh, we should keep you know our eyes very much open um, to offer the latest to our client when it comes available. But for now, sure, um, uh, yeah, we cannot really engage in the crypto sphere as a sustainable company for sure. And maybe to add to it, um, customers are very much interested in uh, local and um, proprietary currencies. So currencies that are uh, there, you know, have a local footprint and are kind of outside the system, but not uh, based on the blockchain, just uh, uh, closed systems. Well, to hear more about all things stablecoins and cryptocurrency, uh, go check out our sister podcast, Blockchain Insider, hosted by 11FS's Simon Taylor and Kai Sheffield, head of crypto at Visa. Okay, let's move on to our next story, which is that French sustainable neobank 
uh, Helios has picked up 9 million euros for its fintech for good that's protecting the planet. Uh, this was reported in various places, including EU startups. One of the first digital uh, eco-banks, Helios, has raised uh, 9 million euros in a seed round. The fresh funding was led by Racine, with the participation of Raise Seed for Good, as well as several angel and C-suite investors. On a mission to limit global warming, Helios was co-created in 2020 by Maeva Courtois and Julia Manayas, uh, who's with us, um, as a sustainable and ecological banking solution, allowing environmental investments. Helios says not a single euro goes to polluting industries, such as oil or coal, and it only supports environmentally friendly investment projects. Uh, the fintech is combining banking with climate action and looking to establish a new approach to protecting the planet. Helios currently boasts a community of 50,000 people and nearly 40 million euros uh, of transactions on its accounts. So, Julia, obviously, we're going to come to you first on this. First of all, many, many congratulations. Um, what are your plans for the seed funding? What, what, uh, what is this going to enable you to do? Sure. Well, a lot, actually, because uh, somehow, Helios, even though we are acting uh, in the banking industry, we are very much bootstrapped uh, for now. So we were only uh, 10 in the company uh, as of now. Um, even though somehow the customers project, there's a, a lot more people um, behind the doors. So first, we're going to recruit a lot. So we have uh, 20 new positions open, uh, both a marketing team, uh, in the product team, in the tech team as well. So there's a lot of recruitments going on. Second, we want to expand, uh, starting in France. So in France, we are the first player position, position in the EcoBank segment, and we want to expand fast. And second, um, in Europe. So we are very happy with our partner. We are partnering with Solaris Bank, um, our partner based out of Berlin. And through this infrastructure and partnership, we can grow outside of France to Spain, to Italy, to the UK, since they've just bought their competitor Contis in the UK market, uh, and Belgium with local IBANs quite easily. So that's the next step as well. And finally, uh, with the fundraising, we announced um, the launch of a new product. So now, Helios, we have four different banking products available. First, there's the current account. Second, we have a youth account. We have a joint account for couples, and we just launched the savings account. So um, we are mission to really uh, replace your existing retail bank, uh, and we want to go one step further um, by offering investment options as well to our customers um, during the year. Could you give listeners a couple of examples of some of the sort of investment projects you, you, you do support? Um, maybe, maybe that's quite a difficult question, but can you give us a sense of, of what you do invest in? Sure. So maybe let me come back one, one second to like, why are we actually um, um, addressing this issue in the banking industry? Because when you, uh, when you first think about global warming, you don't directly associated with the bank, banking industry, right? You mostly think about transport, about planes, but like banking is not that known as a source of CO2 emissions. So yes, the, the, the further issue that we are tackling is the fact that your money, your bank account is the first source of carbon emissions as an individu individual through the investments and, uh, and credits that the bank is actually being, is doing through their balance sheet and through our money. Because your bank might be lending to, um, you know, some company doing, I don't know, open cast mining somewhere else in the world, or they might be contributing to some sort of big oil project or things like that. Is that, is that what you mean? Yes. Exactly. The funding yeah. of fossil fuels mainly uh, is the source of CO2 emissions here. Uh, so this is how, um, what we address here with Helios. And coming from the banking industry ourselves, we saw how much greenwashing there is being done by banks at the moment who invest massively in communication and marketing to advertise their climate efforts while 
you know, keeping investing in fossil fuels, so oil, coal, etc. So some examples, so we've just now reached 1 million euros investment in the ecological transition so far. And two, I'll give two examples. The first project that we supported is a, is a photovoltaic plant based in New Caledonia. Um, and this photo, photovoltaic plant uh, is now live and running. Uh, it allows to, um, to give access to 1,007 households, um, access to renewable energy. And also it allows to avoid the emission of 3,200 tons of CO2 per year. So that's the first project. Second, that, um, second example will be um, Hopium. Hopium is the first uh, factory for 100% uh, hydrogen-based uh, vehicles in France. So with Hopium, we are helping developing uh, this technology, hydrogen, for mobility uh, in France and Europe. Jason and, and Guerra, I'd love to bring you, you, you two in. It's greenwashing point that Julia mentions. Um, do we think that's a, a big problem? Do we? Do, do either of you have a, a strong sense that there are other companies in financial services industry sort of claiming that they're environmentally sound and so on, but but in fact are not so? Jason, it looks like you've got a strong perspective here. I, I have a moderately strong perspective. I mean, I think the the broader you know practice of ESG or environmental sustainable goals for investing can be kind of squishy, right? And they do tend uh, to focus on first order emissions or first order problems, right? And what I mean when I say that is, you know, we can all sort of easily point at, you know, ExxonMobil and say, okay, like this is a company that, you know, develops oil, like this is sort of very clearly and obviously bad. So it shouldn't be in this ESG, you know, investing bundle, or it shouldn't receive loans if the bank wants to say that, you know, its deposit base is ESG. It gets a little bit more complicated when you start to talk about sort of second and third order uh, companies. And what I mean when I say that, mm -hmm. uh, and there's actually uh, an example, sort of a comparable-ish uh, company to Helios in the U.S., called Aspiration, and one of their products is an investing product, you know, which it says, you know, doesn't invest in any, you know, oil, petrol kind of companies, but it does invest in something like 3% of its fund goes to Delta Airlines, which is one of the top consumers of jet fuel in the US. So it becomes a little bit, you know, difficult given that this terminology is not, as far as I'm aware, specifically regulated to sort of parse, you know, what 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 is good and what is bad, or sort of what companies meet the threshold and what companies you know don't or shouldn't meet that threshold. Actually, our, our vision here with Elios is to provide full transparency to our users uh, so that they know exactly where their money goes and why. So obviously, uh, we couldn't, we couldn't, um, and we do want to um, to invest in any companies related to um, uh, the airline industry for sure, right? But also because our, our users are our stakeholders and have a voice in what we do, uh, they will not allow it for sure. So uh, to me, transparency is the key here uh, to all the ESG and, um, uh, you know, and pardon my language here, uh, bullshit that we can see out there from the bank themselves. Julia, I've got another question for you. There's, I mean, there, there are some uh, sort of environmentally friendly or ethical banks already in Europe, someone like maybe Triodos Bank in the Netherlands, um, the Cooperative Bank in the UK to a little to some extent. How, how are you 
different to them? Are you going further than some of them? You know, they, sadly, they haven't been hugely successful. What, 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 what's going to make you different? And I don't mean that to sound aggressive. I want you to be sure. different. I want you sure, to be sure. successful. Sure, that's a good question. Well, actually, um, we have to nuance this because um, you were, um, you know, talking about Triodos. Triodos is actually quite a huge success. Um, it's a you know a huge balance sheet here, very much uh, rigorous when it comes to uh, investing in the ecological solution and the kind of project they are supporting are quite inspiring. So um, here there's a bit of nuance to be added. How do we di differentiate ourselves? Uh, two things. The first thing is that we are a product and tech uh, company. Well, we very much have this tech uh, DNA here. So we aim at making no com compromises when it comes to the user experience to provide uh, the highest standards um, when it comes to digital products. So um, we, for instance, have really the same functionalities that you can see on a Revolut or N26 uh, kind of solution. And also um, the difference here is that we, we bring human quality of service, meaning that we have real financial advisors that we train and that are available for our clients. And that is a game changer because when you talk about banking, you know, you need to have a human interface somehow um, at some point. And our customers, they come from conventional banks in vast majority. So they need to really make uh, Helios their primary account. They need this, um, um, this yes, human touch and financial advisors to, um, to exchange, um, not on a daily basis, but when they need to. So, Digital first and second, uh, real quality of service are the two differentiators. Fantastic. Guerra, what, what do you think? What, uh, what do you think Julia needs to do to succeed? First of all, Julia, love, love Helios. Um, love that you've, you've called out the bullshit, um, you know, ESGs that are out there, you know, kind of talking a big talk. You know, I think that younger consumers, Gen Z, millennial, uh, millennials want more out of out of the services and, and the businesses that they align with. And, you know, it sounds like you guys you guys are actually making a very, very thoughtful effort toward sustainability. But, you know, what I what, we don't have much time left. I, I want to move on to the next story. But what I what I want to challenge you guys, Helios, and, and I wonder if you're, you guys are thinking about it is the knock on effects of, of various, um, you know, greenwashy type type behavior. Right. So, like, for example, the concept of of carbon offsets is, uh, in my opinion, well, a lot of people's opinion, uh, can be quite problematic because the knockout effects are, are really unsustainable. You know, the, there's organizations that run, uh, that enable state and foreign companies to seize control of land in, in global South communities, uh, you know, countries like Uganda and, and India, uh, that erode food and resource security. And and is this something that, that Helios is is actually conscious about and looking at the knock-on effects and, and going deeper down that value, ch of, down that chain of, of sustainability? Well, I'm sure you really align here. So we um, studied uh, offsetting quite deeply and decided not to go there for those reasons. Uh, the thing is with Helios is that we are a purpose-driven company. So that's a, a different kind of legal status in France. That means our, our environmental objectives are written down in our legal documentation. And that also means that we work together with uh, environmental NGOs that are part of our governance. So they really do challenge us on every of those topics. Uh, so offsetting obviously couldn't pass the cut uh, for all those reasons. So yes, what we do is we, we analyze project per project and we go deeper. Obviously, not every project, there is no perfect project, right? Um, for instance, when it comes to solar um, solar power, uh, there are limits now when it comes to uh, recycling um, the panels, to sourcing them, uh, mostly um, it's not perfect, this industry now. And we, as a transparent player, needs to also 
give this information to our users and show them where are the limits of the project that we are funding as well. So this comes uh, with the full transparency. Well, like Guerra, I didn't really want to move on from this topic because climate change is the most uh, serious crisis that humanity faces. Um, however, we must move on. Um, but Julia, uh, best of luck to you and your team at Helios. Uh, I think we wish you every success. And listeners, if you want to hear more about the rise of fintech for good, like Helios, uh, listen to Fintech Insider episode 613, where we spoke to organizations helping to improve charitable giving and community action. Um, I hope we'll hear much more from Helios um, and others like it in the, in the coming uh, months and years. Okay, we're just going to take a quick pause here uh, while you hear from our sponsors. We'll be back very shortly. Did you know that the majority of people are investing in cryptocurrency through a taxable account when they could be using an IRA, that's an individual retirement account, and avoiding or deferring those taxes? With Alto Crypto IRA, you can invest in crypto without tax headaches, creating a free account in only minutes. Choose from over 150 coins and invest with as little as $10. That's right, only 10 bucks. No setup charges and no account fees. To open an Alto Crypto IRA with as little as 10 just go to altoira.com forward slash insider. That's A-L-T-O-I-R-A.com forward slash insider. Fintech Insider presents After Dark Ripping Up the Rulebook, a special recording of Fintech Insider live from New York City, and we want you to join us. On Tuesday, May 24th, we'll be looking at DeFi, punk rock, embedded finance and hip hop, and breaking down how they've all disrupted their industries. Head to 11fs.com forward slash afterdark for all the info and to get your free ticket. That's at 11fs.com forward slash afterdark. See you in New York. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. So this is that uh, Revolut, uh, the pan-European digital bank, has had to suspend refugee referral payouts after some users started gaming the system. This was reported in the UK's Daily Telegraph, among others. So Revolut has been forced to overhaul a scheme that was aimed at helping Ukrainian refugees after some of its customers sought to exploit it for potential payments of up to £250. The bank has had to stop paying referral bonuses to users who point friends in the direction of a special fee-free, easy-to-open-an-account intended for people fleeing Ukraine in the wake of Vladimir Putin's invasion. Because it's understood that some customers tried to gain bonuses using methods that breach the company's terms and conditions. Revolut, which actually was co-founded by a Russian and a Ukrainian entrepreneur, has become popular with refugees opening an account after it dropped requirements for documents, which many, of course, don't have access to, such as proof of a right to reside in a particular country. The business also allows refugees to link an account to their Ukrainian bank account so they can access funds and has waived transfer fees for foreign currencies. A spokesman for Revolut said... Our controls flagged that a small number of accounts were being targeted by users attempting to exploit our referral campaign. We have therefore temporarily paused the referral aspect as a precautionary measure. What a shame. Um, what, do, what do we all think of, of, of this? Is, is it inevitable that, that, that people will try and game a system that's set up for charity? I, I always try and think the best of human nature, but am I, am I naively optimistic? I, I mean, I hate, to be, uh, I hate to be the voice of, of cynicism, but yes. I mean, I think I can certainly you know, admire what Revolut was trying to do here. I mean, having moved to several foreign countries in the course of my lifetime, you know, that, that first experience of, 
getting appropriate documentation, setting up a bank account, you know, getting a phone, etc., can be challenging. You know, under the best of circumstances, you know, let alone uh, the situation that you know people fleeing Ukraine are in. But I think any time, you know, particularly with a fully uh, digital account opening process, anytime you provide an incentive, particularly if it's a cash incentive, uh, you know, you're kind of making yourself a target for scams and and even oftentimes sort of organized criminal gangs to exploit or to attempt to detect any kind of weakness, right? And here, you know, it sounds like they sort of relax some of the onboarding. Um, checks that they might typically do, which when combined with a referral fee, you know, no doubt attracted that type of criminal intention. And it's not to point the finger at Revolut. I mean, PayPal just, I think, four or six weeks ago uh, in their quarterly earnings revealed that they had something like four and a half million illegitimate accounts that were the result of incentivized referrals. I mean, this is really to be blunt, just sort of par for the course in online account opening, again, particularly when there's a cash incentive tied to referrals or to opening an account. Julia, do you, do you agree? Do you think referral fees sort of encourage people to, to game a system? Maybe to take a step back here, we know that in the B2C retail banking sphere, uh, fraud is always an issue. It's really sad that it comes to this end here, for sure. The thing is that you cannot uh, expect people to, um, you know, have a fraudulent use of such mechanisms that are aimed to do good, though. So uh, that's a bit deceptive. Well, my experience in the retail banking industry is that yes, fraud is everywhere. So you have to um, somehow, you know, put some some rules out there and be kind of cautious. Quera, do you think there's a there's a there's a you know solution? Because you know, as Jason was sort of saying, it's just done with good intentions, but. Um, I, do you think there's a, a, a way that Revolut solves this? Yeah, so I mean, uh, the, I, my simple solve for this would be just remove the financial incentive. This is like a this is almost like a textbook example of the Cobra effect. So if anyone's heard of the Cobra effect, it's like basically a scenario where um, unintended negative consequence as a result of an incentive designed to improve something. So like basically, this happened in India a long, long time ago. There was a money, a cash prize for people who who brought. There was a snake problem, cobra problem, paid people cash to bring to bring dead snakes um, to to the British what, uh, governor or whoever, uh, and people realized I could actually make a lot of money from this, so they started <laughs> farming snakes, and there was way more snakes than necessary because of that cash incentive, right? So that's that's the cobra effect. Revolut, I, I think again, the best intentions were had. I think this was, you know, I think no one who designed this, you know, had, had bad intentions or even could have seen this coming. This came out of panic and, 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 and pain and want, and wanting to genuinely help people. But I think potentially like taking a step back and, and thinking about more, more different ways to, to support communities like refugees, um, can it's something that can be done. I mean, there's there's tons of fintechs who are who are stepping up as well to support Ukraine. I think everyone's trying to help where they can. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just a shame that that um, a lot of people who are going through literally the worst time of their lives um, are being affected so heinously by bad actors. And it's not enough to just say that you know these are bad actors. It's also, I mean, from a the, an industry perspective, like fintechs are mostly targeted uh, uh, quite heavily by by scammers so it's it's just I, honestly I'm, I'm I feel quite quite sad about this but yeah solution not well thought out solution that I would give is just remove the cash incentive 
add some other maybe um you know, remove barriers for, for refugees uh, to open accounts, not just Ukrainian refugees, everyone, uh, refugees from Somalia, um, from, from Pakistan, wherever they're coming from, uh, just make it easier for people to to go through the worst time of their life. Yeah, you're, you're completely right, aren't you? I mean, fintech as a whole, or, or many fintech companies, including Revolut, have been trying really hard to make things better for, for refugees from, as you say, Ukraine, Yemen, you know, various other um, places in the world, Syria, where people are going through incredibly tough times. And it's just sort of shame on this small number of people who've made things worse. But... Uh, any any closing thoughts on this story? I mean, I, I would echo uh, Julia's comments that that you know fraud is you know a consistent and pervasive problem, you know in in retail banking and particularly in you know fintech in the sense that it's you know fully online or fully digital, and you know approaches to solving those challenges, you know rightly uh, but occasionally problematically tend to rely on modeling. Right. And, you know, to the extent that, you know, automated models are balanced with human review when necessary to ensure that people who should be able to get through an onboarding process, you know, in this case, even if they don't necessarily have all of the required documents are able to get through while ensuring that bad actors are not able to get through, um, you know, it, it, it's a tough needle to thread. And I do think that, uh, um, Whereas a very logical recommendation to remove the incentive would probably be a very good first step to to addressing this challenge for for Revolut specifically. Well, you know, all credit to Revolut for everything it it has 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 been doing. Um, okay, let's move on then to our next story, uh, which is that Plaid's co-founder's next venture is a bank to power fintech apps. William Hockey, the co-founder of Plaid, has launched his new venture, his first since leaving the company in 2019, which is uh, launched with his wife, Annie Hockey. They are both the co-founders and co-CEOs of Column. Column is a US nationally chartered bank with a direct connection to the Fed. It has an in-house ledger and a data model to power various fintech services. Hockey told TechCrunch, Column is a nationally chartered bank, but have built every facet of the technology from scratch. We're both the bank and the technology provider. The Hockeys spent $50 million last year to buy Northern California National Bank, a purchase which lets Column offer services that fintechs previously would have had to get from multiple providers. Developers can use Column to build apps that pull and push money to any bank account, for example, or to maintain FDIC-insured uh, checking and savings accounts. With Column, a fintech can launch a debit or credit program with any issuer processor, or they can become an originating partner, offering products for debt financing and loan repurchase. Jason, I'm tempted to come to you first. Is this just banking as a service, or is Column doing more than what you can already get? Yeah, so I I, uh, actually wrote about this recently, so hopefully I can give you a good answer. You know, I kind of think of this as sort of the third generation of banking as a service, right? So if your sort of first iteration was uh, a non-bank fintech, you know, directly partnering with a licensed bank. So for example, Chime working with Bankcorp uh, to do a debit program or a firm working with Cross River and Celtic to originate loans. So you had sort of this one-to-one model. Now, a lot of, not all, but many of the banks, particularly those offering debit programs, uh, tend to be smaller, occasionally older 
community banks. There's a regulatory reason for that. Banks below $10 billion in assets uh, have uncapped debit interchange in the U.S., uh, so they're a, a more attractive business model for a fintech to partner with a small bank. However, sometimes the technology stack that bank you know, may be able to offer is not as modern or as sophisticated, right? And that sort of gave rise to what I'll call you know, the sort of middleware banking as a service players in the US. That's companies like Unit, Bond, Treasury Prime. Their main value proposition for fintechs was we're going to lower the cost uh, and increase the speed to get to market by abstracting some of that complexity, uh, both technical complexity of integrating, uh, but also some of the regulatory and compliance complexity of interacting directly with a bank partner. So now what we're seeing with Column is, you know, going out and, and buying a bank license, you know, for 50 million small local bank in Northern California and building from the ground up a technology stack that's aimed towards serving fintech customers. So in that sense, I think potentially there are advantages on the technical side and also on sort of like the business model or the economic side by removing that middleware layer. Now, to play devil's advocate to my own argument, you know, the the middleware (laughs) players uh, have the opportunity to incorporate more than one underlying bank partner. So let's say your unit, you know, you could potentially have two, three, four underlying bank partners supporting different product lines, a debit program, a savings program, you know, a lending program, a credit card, uh, whereas I would imagine Column's goal is to be a one-stop shop for fintechs that are looking to offer multiple products. So I do see some green space that Column is operating in here. You know, holding the license and building everything from the ground up makes it competitive to the sort of old school partners. Uh, and there's opportunity to provide efficiencies versus the sort of middleware software layers. It seems to me it's quite similar to what someone like Fidor Bank was doing in Europe or is still doing in Europe. And, and, and Solaris Bank, of course, is, is, is doing for, 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 for you, Julia. And so, so to Jason's point about you know, potentially having multiple suppliers, um, would you want to work with more partners than just Solaris Bank? I mean, you know, leaving aside whether you love Solaris Bank or not, but we, you know, can you imagine a future where you might want multiple bank partners to supply infrastructure and technology to you, or are you quite happy working with, with one strong partner? So there's two things here. Sure, as a start, uh, when you start your venture, you have a go-to-market issue and you need to be fast. So having one, uh, one partner is obviously much more effective. But then uh, growing, you want to have more control over your value chain to be able to offer a better service to your users, as well as to optimize some cost items here. So working one-to-one with different partners uh, is, becomes more cost-effective somehow. But at first, you benefit from having one partner who is dealing with a multiple, um, a multiple, yes, some multiple partners as well. So you have a, a scale effect uh, from the very beginning that is very beneficial. But the second thing here links to the uh, banking license. There's, a, to me, a huge benefit uh, of working with uh, a banking service partner that has a full banking license and that comes from the security uh, that provide that is provided to your clients 
uh, in Europe, I can only speak for Europe here, but uh, because we, we are partnering with Larisbon that has a banking license, our users benefit from what we call the um, uh, deposit guarantee fund. So they have the same level of security on the deposit as a regular bank. So that's very differentiating and also very important to retail users in the banking sphere, right? You need your money secure for, for sure. Of course. And of regular bars are not uh, that much secure if they don't have the banking uh, license themselves. What do you think, what do you think, Guerra? Um, it's this this point about the modern tech stack, I mean, so Jason's making the interesting point that, you know, some of the smaller community banks that provide banking as a service have got, you know, maybe older tech stacks and so on. Do you think Column is going to make a big splash? Um, I think I think Column already, you know, this is the dude that was one of the founders <laughs> of Plaid. Like, already he's made some big splashes in his, his career. So, you know, and he's, he's uh, him and him and his wife are, are diving into this space and uh, into Bass again, so something that he he's got quite a, quite a lot of uh, experience in. But you know the fact that developers can use Qualm to to build apps that pull and push money to any bank account, really, like like we said, that is also FDIC insured, is is huge. Like it's basically kind of allowing uh, people to plug in and build like almost immediately, right? So similar to the ethos of, of Plaid, lowering the bar to to entry um, uh, to serve and and. Um, I don't know. I, I see. I see columns being an enabler of, of sorts. Uh, I just don't know what it is with all these names, like column plaid. I, there's just such odd names for businesses, though. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> you want a brand that doesn't sort of mean something already, I think, yeah. and, and isn't weird in a foreign language. Yeah, when you Google it the first time, you're like, you won't get it, and until they blow up, and then you're like, oh yeah, okay, those guys. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the um, uh, a, a friend of ours spotting her five year old boy googling chicks and uh, quickly you know, <laughs> snatching the la- the tablet Ooh. from him. Um, <laughs> um, Sidetrack, um, J- Jason. Uh, how disruptive is this likely to be? Do you think to the existing sort of banking as a service market? in the States. Do you think the existing players are concerned? I mean, uh, as Guerra said, this is the founder of Plaid, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly something that, that they'll be keeping their eye on, you know, particularly given his bona fides as co-founder of, of Plaid, right? Uh, but that said, you know, building uh, and particularly switching banking or banking as a service relationships is a major undertaking, right? So if you've already you know, started building a fintech company on top of Bank Corp, on top of WebBank. You know, it's no small undertaking to change that to a new provider. Uh, and you know, like I sort of hinted at or referenced earlier, the economics, you know, at this point, like, aren't clear. So I mean, there may be cases mm-hmm. where, depending on what you're building, you know, it makes more sense to use a middleware layer like a unit uh, or a bond or treasury prime versus working directly with column. So, I mean, there are definitely some unknowns there, but if I were in that space, and frankly, particularly if I were one of those older partner banks that typically has had direct relationships, so the companies like like Bancorp and, and TAB and Stride, it's definitely something I would be keeping my eye on. I mean, we know the success of sort of engineering and product-led businesses, companies like Plaid and like Stripe. And I have to imagine that Column will follow a similar path to market where it's marketing to 
builders. It's marketing to software engineers and product managers who will be key in making that buying decision at the companies that they work at. And if they have sort of a suite of options in front of them, you know, they're going to want the one with the, ro- the most robust APIs, technical documentation, etc. And, and, you know, we'll see how that plays out over the next, you know, 6, 12, 18 months. I totally agree. I think there's definitely like such an appetite for a bit of empathy in in the industry, right? Like, so going to uh, these guys, so call them versus going to like a, to partner with another bank where you potentially might have to do a lot of explaining, a lot of handholding, a lot of journey taking with with them to to explain it what it is you want to do. You know, th- th- this is it's kind of cool to see that fifty million dollars could buy you a, a bank a bank basically. Um, I mean, fifty million dollars is is a drop in the bucket if you think about you know, what a lot of other fintechs have to go through um, and, and what, you know, most traditional banks are, are what they're what they're up for sale for. Um, but I'll, I'll give a bit of context in another market. So like in the African market specifically, there's so many stories we hear about like uh, fintechs coming up against trying to partner with banks and having all these, you know, exclusivity clauses and partnerships that are just, you know, kind of tying, tying their hands behind their backs that we're actually seeing a rise now of people, of, of fintechs and fintech consortiums actually buying banks outright. And I think we're going to see more of that because as the the price of, of banks, you know, falls, you know, the, the, we, we've seen the, the bundling and unbundling of banks and all the M&As that are falling apart now and banks, I guess, getting cheaper. Um, I think we're going to see more of that. Um, more, more, more people just outright buying the house so that they can invite others into it, which is Others, I mean, fintechs. Really great insights. No, I mean, I think that's exactly right. Particularly in the U.S. market, you know, you have something like 4,000 small local banks. You know, not all of them are going to continue serving, you know, their small community. And you've seen this with with Green Dot acquiring a bank, SoFi, uh, and GECO, uh, and now Column. So, I mean, I think that, that that is something, obviously, you know, financing and, you know, regulatory considerations are, are a big part of that. But I think you're going to see more of that in the US as well. Great insights. Thank you all. Okay, now for the part of the show where we quickly round up some of the other stories from the week that we didn't have time to cover, but still deserve a quick shout out. Guerra, do you want to get us started? Absolutely. So this came from TechCrunch. Um, Flutterwave CEO addresses alleged misconduct claims in an email to employees. So these are the first comments by the Flutterwave CEO, Olubenga Abola, also known as GB, very widely known as GB, uh, since a report by West Africa Weekly, uh, a Substack newsletter written by journalist David Hudian, revealed several allegations against the startup and GB ranging from fraud to perjury uh, to even insider trading and unfortunately also sexual harassment. GB wrote, The fact that the allegations of financial impropriety, conflict of interest, and sexual harassment have been proved false or have already been reported, investigated, and addressed by management matters less to me than the reality that these claims may have shaken your confidence in the company. As a founder and CEO, it is my responsibility to address the concerns you may have, and this will be the priority for me moving forward. So alongside the leadership team, GB also says he has plans to visit every Flutterwave office on the continent of Africa and have one-to-one chats with employees by the end of the year. So um, to find out more about how much these accusations have shaken the Nigerian and African fintech scene, we reached out to Abu Bakar Idris, uh, Africa reporter for Rest of World. The impact of these revelations have been huge and sweeping since it has shown that bad culture or bad work culture can exist at both small startups and big companies that are widely revered. On the one hand, 
The flutter with accusations follow a number of disturbing work culture revelations in the broader Nigerian tech ecosystem over the last couple of weeks. Hence, every reaction might be better understood in this context. And it shows that these allegations and these practices might be happening in more places than we currently know. However, since these accusations have become public, more and more people are becoming conscious of the bad work culture that exists in their current workplace and they are voicing out about it. And they are not just leaving it to staying quiet or making random anonymous attacks on their employers on social media. Now they're being more outspoken about these things and trying to find ways to make changes at their various companies. But on the other hand, we still don't know the full picture with these reactions. Too many people remain quiet and they are willing to talk about these issues either because they are connected to the individuals involved or to avoid making it seem like it's a systemic issue in the Nigerian fintech space. Um, so this story actually was was quite, it shook the continent, I mean, at least the, the industry across the continent of Africa. There's concerns from, from folks being like, well, stories like this are shaking confidence in investors coming into the space. It's shaking confidence in people who, uh, you know, potential workforce, people, potential talent who who want to enter fintech and are hearing these kinds of stories. Um, I think that the it's it's absolutely heinous. Um, on top of this uh, this expose from from the West Africa Weekly, there was also a Twitter thread and a Medium post from a former employee citing similar allegations. So it's 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 quite it's a really sad uh, state of affairs um, on the content, not not in the content, but in the industry and and you know just with horrible bosses, people misbehaving in power or allegations of them doing that. Um, so I, I really hope that this tour that the GB is going on across the, the company is able to to restore faith. And, and, and you know, in, in a perfect world, I, I hope that these allegations are, are false. Thank you. So the next story is that Swedish children's financial literacy app, Jimmy, is teaming up with ABN AMRO. So Jimmy, which is a Swedish edtech startup founded by a former professional footballer, is partnering with a Dutch bank, ABN AMRO, to educate young people about personal finance and handling their bank accounts. Jimmy says that ABN AMRO is the first bank in Europe to launch an educational tool designed especially for children and their parents to help address the issue of financial illiteracy in the young. The app lets ABN AMRO's young customers handle their money through their connected bank account using open banking. The co-branded app will be initially available to all families in the Netherlands. To hear more on this, we reached out to Philip Haglund, founder and CEO of Jimmy, to ask how the partnership works and the importance of teaching financial literacy to children. Hi, my name is Philip Haglund and I'm the CEO and founder of Jimmy, a financial education app for children. When we're at school, we're taught about faraway planets kings and queens, and even the temperature that water boils at. But there are never any lessons about finances. We're not taught how to budget, what a mortgage is, or how to prepare for financial stability in adulthood. Our app, called Gimme, hopefully solves this by teaching children financial literacy. Connected to your kid's bank account, a parent and child can set recurring allowances through the app, assign chores that need doing, for money, of course, and establish personal savings milestones. We've had a really busy week this week as we just launched a program with Eben Amro, one of the biggest banks in the Netherlands. Five million people bank with ABM, and now their children will have access to the Gimme app. This means Dutch kids can use our app to learn about money, enroll in personal finance lessons, and take part in money missions with their families. Financial literacy has never been more important. With the current cost of living crisis, young adults need to be better prepared than ever for financial independence. 
we want to see finance on school curriculums around the world in the next few years to tackle this growing, all-important crisis. So I think this is a really, uh, really interesting story. Uh, you know, there's no question that school children in, and, and younger age children in many countries aren't taught enough about finances and budgeting. I think to me the crux of this is making sure that the educational content is, is provided in a way that's engaging. Um, anybody who's got younger children knows that um, you know they're not going to read. Uh, it needs to be things like videos and games. So to me the crux of getting through to young people is making it fun, making it engaging, showing them how money works, um, and doing that in a really engaging way. Um, so. Best of best of luck, and it's good to see um, you know big banks getting involved and and taking that step ser- taking that seriously. Okay, let's bring everyone back uh, for the last story of the week. This is that Spanish football fans have been thanking their cup-winning manager via his banking app. Fans of the Spanish football club Real Betis have been showing appreciation to their cup-winning manager Manuel Pellegrini via microtransactions to his banking app. Real Betis beat Valencia in the Copa del Rey final and picked up their first trophy since 2005. Pellegrini, or someone who controls his social media, posted a picture on Twitter after the final which accidentally included his mobile phone number. The Chilean coach received a huge amount of messages from Betis fans who wanted to thank him for the trophy. Fans were blocked on WhatsApp, but they figured out how to get around that too. They started sending messages to their coach via the Bizum banking application, which only requires a phone number. Betis fans filled Pellegrini's account with money and sent him messages of thanks along the way. Bizum, which recently celebrated reaching 20 million users, is yet to comment on the tipping supporters. What a lovely story. This is probably the best outcome of doxing ever. It's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a nice story for Bism, isn't yeah. it? You know, nice, uh, nice little bit of um, publicity for them. If anyone would like to send me some money, I'm happy to <laughs> share my phone number. <laughs> share your Venmo, Cash App. <laughs> uh, so which, uh, which, which celebrity figure would you perhaps uh, like to thank via a small donation to their banking app if you could, uh, if you could perhaps uh, don- donate a little bit of money to, to someone who might you... Uh, um, think about donating some money to. She doesn't need it, but I would like send like zero point one dollar to Rihanna just just to know that she read my message, uh, just to just to know that she saw me <laughs> say something to her. I would send zero point one dollars. <laughs> what about you, Jason? Yeah, this is I guess a bit of a American pandemic throwback, but Anthony Fauci. I mean, he had to put up with so much uh, uh, BS over the course of the past two and a half years. I would like to send him, you know, at least one American dollar to thank him for his hard work. <laughs> and you, Julia? Well, um, that's a tricky question, huh? Um, maybe that's too obvious to say I'll put uh, all my money in the ecological transition, but that doesn't work. That's too corporate. Um, I'll say Greta, Greta, because uh, she's still young. Greta Thunberg, she's doing a lot for her age and um, she's being a lot criticized, but uh, she's the one though. Do you know, I was going to say exactly the same person because she's a champion for a younger generation and she's tackling the most important crisis um, facing facing our planet. And I'm sure she would put the money uh, to, to good use. Okay. Um, well, that is all that we have time for. Thank you so much for being such fantastic guests on this week's news show. Thank you so much. Where can people find out um, a little bit more about you? And uh, let's go, ladies first. Uh, Guerra. Um, you can find me at 11fs.com, uh, also on Twitter, not Guerra, and also on the web- 11fs website. Check out the Ventures page. Lots of cool stuff going on there. And Julia. Well, you can check out the website, Elios with an H dot D O. And also happy to get some uh, news on the fintech side uh, on my LinkedIn page if you have any uh, 
updates in the sustainable ecosystem. Thank you. And Jason? You can uh, subscribe at fintechbusinessweekly.com and follow me on Twitter at MakulaJA. And as for me, I'm Benjamin Ensor, and you can uh, find me on LinkedIn or on 11fs.com. So thank you all very much for listening. Um, please join the conversation on social media or email us at podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you very much and goodbye. Thank you.